this podcast may have explicit content. It also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Tuesday, January 14th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Democratic debate in Iowa tonight is the seventh debate, this time with only six candidates. Well, five and Tom Steyer, who is not a politician. He has that niche, but also not a multi-bulti billionaire who ran the largest city in America. Michael Bloomberg has that distinction, but Michael Bloomberg is not invited because he is not the kind of billionaire who hits up citizens for their dollars to augment his billions of dollars. Tom Steyer is such a billionaire, and that lands him on the stage. Oh, Democratic Party rules. Cory Booker, as with the last debate, will not be on the stage because he is no longer running for president. I have essentially done uh, an obit for most of the major candidates who dropped out because most, at the time of dropping out, made a claim that they were unfairly ignored. Cory Booker didn't explicitly do that, but also because unlike Gillibrand, Castro, Williamson, and Harris... With them, I had strong countervailing reasons to explain why they lost. But with Booker, I don't know. He didn't do poorly in any debate. He didn't have big, bold policies that people just didn't like. He didn't believe that he was once an attendant to Jesus in a past life. That does explain one of our recently departed, though always with us in spirit candidates. I will say this about one of Cory Booker's policies, baby bonds. It would cost a lot, but it would do a lot, and the lot it would do would be profound. It would seed all children with wealth, and it would greatly close the racial wealth gap. Michael Bennett, still running, by the way, has a more modest but also highly impactful version of this plan, which is why I guess he's not breaking through either. I guess if you're looking to sell the public on a costly program that helps some people, the people you want to help shouldn't be babies, it should be people with student debt is what America is telling us right now. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just that the people who do a lot of arguing and retweeting on Twitter, they're more likely to themselves have student debt than to be babies. I I, I assume this to be true. I also know that Elizabeth Warren does want to forgive student debt. She also says, as of today, she says she'll do it on day one because she can and because Congress can't be trusted to have a say in spending $1.5 trillion over a decade. She hinted at this program less than a week ago with this tweet, quote, you deserve better. Dump the guy who ghosted you, convince the roommate to let you adopt a dog, and I'll take care of canceling your student loan debt. Wow, cool mom energy right there. Of course, the guy ghosting you, I mean, if he's ghosting you, how do you get in touch with him to dump him? But anyway, I'm more concerned about the third part. See, if you convince your roommate to get a dog and the American, see, if you convince your roommate to get a dog, the American people don't pay $1.5 trillion for the dog. The American people don't pay $1.5 trillion for the ghosted boyfriend. Though in his new book, Michael Lind argues the ghost of Thomas Jefferson has cost Americans so much more. My point is basically Lavoisier's conservation of matter. Debt can't be canceled or incurred. It can only be transferred or absorbed. And we, the body politic, are being asked to absorb it. And in the spiel, I will, like an early baboon heart recipient, I will reject that offer. But first... 
Let's talk about some bad stuff. Literally, the stuff of badness. When something is bad, when it's a negative experience, it sears us, much more so, researchers have found, than a pleasant interaction lifts us. This makes sense evolutionary, but now, in 2020, still being governed by certain berry-plucking strategies that served our ancestors, might not be optimizing for current survival. What to do? How about listen to this interview? with John Tierney, author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us, and How We Can Rule It. Are you a bit of a gambler, or would you rather just uh, keep your money and not risk it? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind risking a few dollars, but I just don't want to go overboard, you know? Would you say you're, you're a gambling woman? Do you like gambling? No, I don't. I don't really gamble. I, I I'm very cautious and finicky whether it's eating or taking chances. Yeah, the risk of losing something isn't worth the gambling of it, I guess. I, I wouldn't take a risk, let's put it that way. If we were to play heads or tails, would you want to do it if you won, you won a dollar, but if I won, I won a dollar? Uh, probably not, no. Uh, no, no thanks. If you knew the game was on the up and up, and I were to flip a coin, and I said, oh, look, I'll pay you, you know, $1.25 if you win. You only have to pay me a dollar. No, I ain't doing it with you. No. I don't know. That just doesn't seem worth it. If I said, look, I'll give you $1.50, and you only have to put up a dollar. Would you do it then? No. Not really. 50 cents is not worth it. What if I offered you $1.75 if you won? That's a possibility. Maybe. Yeah. Like, at that point, you maybe start thinking about it. Fine. I'll give you $2, you only have to put up a dollar. Would you be interested? Sure. Yeah. I would do that. I would do that. Hey, yes. Sure. Wow, so everyone seems to converge around two bucks, two to one? Yes. So that means that, like, loss is twice as painful. Yeah, you could say loss hurts twice as much as gain feels good. Why do you think that is? It must have something to do with, you know, when we were all running away from lions on the savannah. Yeah, it always seems to come back to that, doesn't it? Uh, I guess a wildebeest in the brush is worth a lion on the heels or something. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> but were there any people that... So that right there is your humble correspondent from an episode of Radio Lab a few years ago. And as you could hear what I was doing, I was in a park and offering uh, people, oh, I don't know, a dollar on a game of let's flip a coin and no one was taking it. And then if I would offer... Upwards of a dollar fifty, some would take it, and at two dollars, people would say, "Yeah, I'll risk a dollar to win two dollars on a fifty-fifty bet." This is a version of loss aversion that a lot of economists have studied, and it fits into the greater theory and the greater premise, which is described a few ways and with a few labels. But in general, we hate bad things more than we love good things, and in fact. Bad things have a greater effect on us than good things. This is all talked about and written about in the new book by John Tierney and Roy Baumeister, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us, and How We Can Rule It. Bum, bum, bum. Hello, John. Hi, Mike. So you could have called it a few things. You settled on negativity effect. Right. Why do you think that's the best way to think about it? I mean, negativity bias is another you know fine word for it, but I think that it's this overall effect. A bias is something inside your head, but also it's got this effect on so many things in our lives. You know, the way we see things, the way we act. So, give us a couple of examples. I talked about money. Give us a non-monetary example or two. 
Someone pays you lots of compliments and has one word of criticism and you go home just obsessing about the criticism. And that's not just because the individual person is overly sensitive. That's common among all of us. I mean, I mean, species. all authors know that it's a one line in the review. It can be a rave review if there's one line. Oh, my God, how could they say that? I mean, there are other experiments showing that when people are shown a group of faces, they focus on the hostile face and they miss the smiling ones. You know, our brain just evolved. It's wired to focus on bad stuff. Yeah. And you also say that you went looking for, well, what are the opposites? What are the areas of life where the good tends to be the thing that we anchor on? Couldn't find many, huh? That was the big surprise. I mean, the loss aversion stuff that you studied, that was known in the 80s. And there were some other examples. And my co-author, Roy Baumeister, who's a great social psychologist, he was curious about this loss aversion. Why is this? So let's find some examples where good is strong. Right. Maybe that's with money, but maybe like the hope will outweigh the trying to avoid loss. I don't know. Maybe with politics. Maybe something about Americans are so optimistic that they'll take these chances, you know, betting on the come. Just not true. Right. And they surveyed the literature in psychology, sociology lots of fields economic and just you know bad was relentlessly strong you know that prizes don't work as well as penalties that good parenting doesn't make that much difference but bad parenting makes a big difference and they kept finding it over and over again so he wrote this much cited paper called bad is stronger than good so much of good is just the absence of bad if you look at education outcomes, there's many, many ways to screw up a kid. There's not a huge <laughs> tried and true way to have a kid well-educated, except try to avoid the many bad ways. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we advise people just in general, be a good enough parent, be a good enough teacher. I mean, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to avoid the bad stuff because you can't really, for instance, raise a kid's natural IQ. Right. Um, I mean, you can hire great tutors. You can do you know lots of things. But what you can do is lower a kid's IQ in a bad environment. They've shown that. Yeah. Yes. I, I was for myself trying to think of counterexamples, and I thought about sex and pizza. And it's <laughs> like the old line, pizza is like sex in that even bad pizza is pretty good. So that is maybe <laughs> something where we focus on the good and the uh, possibility of the thing being good or the assumption that the thing is going to be good outweighs the fact that some version of it might be bad. Now, one bad sexual experience can traumatize somebody for life. Yes. But, but nobody you know, goes through life thinking about that one great afternoon of sex. It becomes kind of a fond, hazy memory. It doesn't stick with you in the same way. Well, there is a logic to being very averse to loss, being very wary of doing something bad. Without it, we might not have evolved as a species. Like, we really needed to avoid the poison mushrooms, and we really needed not to pet all the cute dogs because one could <laughs> probably bite us and we'd bleed forever. That's a Exactly right. I mean, as we say, you know, uh, life has to win every day. Death just has to win once. That's right. Yes. There is no choice we could make that gives us immortality. But there are literally infinite number of choices that you and I could make this afternoon that would kill us and that would be the last choice we make. Exactly. Yeah. So then you come to the fact that, okay, that was true for most of human existence, but now we're in a different place. And I want to take your observation and maybe add to it. I think that you can make the case that the formulation is adaptive becomes maladaptive when you add abundance. All of these adaptive behaviors were in a forum of scavenging and trying to make choices that if you made the wrong choice of what to eat, you'd die. But you had to. You very much also had to make the right choice of what to eat right. Now, there's almost no choice to make. The only choice is like to eat less. And also with media, when the sources of information coming in, when there were very few of them, it was a very different calculation than now that the sources wash over us. So what was adaptive 
plus abundance often equals maladaptive. That's a great way to put it. I mean, you're right, because there were more real threats to our ancestors. I mean, people died young all the time, so they really had to be there. And as part of our abundance, we just don't have that many fatal threats. I mean, there's still social threats. There's still things that go wrong, but we don't face that. And one of the other things that they found, and we write about this in the book, is that when the real threats disappear— And when the serious stuff goes away, we invent new threats. We get first world problems that we start obsessing about. And there's some really interesting experiments how people just start inventing these things to make up for the fact that there aren't fatal threats around anymore. We just start imagining all these doomsdays. We start imagining threats. Right, right. So one experiment is the experiment we've all lived through. And there is a mass panic about child kidnappings. And it just isn't true. But what are some experiments that they've done in the lab to show this? Dan Gilbert at Harvard did a really interesting experiment where they showed people a bunch of dots and asked them to identify the blue ones. And they even warned them, I think, that now as this goes on, there'll be fewer and fewer blue dots. Well, people keep identifying the same number of blue dots, and they start seeing purple dots as blue. And the same thing happened when they asked them to identify faces, you know, pick out the hostile faces. As the prevalence of hostile faces declines, they start interpreting neutral faces as. And, you know, there's an old saying that no food, one problem. Much food, many problems. We just have the leisure to start worrying about stuff, and our brain naturally goes there. Right. As I always say, we catastrophize the normal. I mean, we normalize the catastrophic. That (laughs) that is true, but we catastrophize the normal. So talk about global warming. There are some hurricanes that are hurricanes, and they always happen. And they maybe wouldn't have been any worse if there was global warming. We might see that purple dot hurricane as a blue dot because we're inventing problems. And I use that advisedly because global warming is a real problem. But still, we could look at the problem of global warming and think that everything confirms it because we're obsessed with that, which is bad. Global warming is definitely a real problem. It's a real threat to to be concerned about. But it's also an example of what we call the crisis crisis, which is this tendency of special interest to hype threats and inspire us to do solutions that help them. And some of the problems with global warming are that there's been so much exaggeration that, you know, since the 80s, it's always been in 10 years, there'll be mass catastrophe. So a lot of people just don't believe it at all. And then you also get the problem that the people who are pushing these alarmist things have their own agenda for doing stuff that often is not really doing much to solve the problem. And so you see places that have adopted the most advanced green policies like Germany are not making very good progress toward actually reducing carbon emissions because they're basically doing policies that help special interests instead of solving the problem. Okay, but why is that focusing on the bad? I mean, I really wanted to talk about global warming because to me, it is true, we think everything's bad, but this... This one's the thing that really is bad. Just like before 9-11, we thought that every, you know, terrorist group was right. out to destroy us. And then there was one that right. was out to destroy us and, you know, killed 3,000 people. Against a world where we tend to see the purple dots as blue, how do we also properly adjudicate the actual blue dots? Well... I guess it's trying not to look at the one hurricane, but look at the big picture. I mean, that's the general rule. And don't look at the one terrorist attack because, you know, despite, I mean, 9-11 was a terrible day, but there hasn't really been a long-term increase in terrorism. To some extent, it's because we've done some to fortify ourselves against that. I mean, it's some of that. I think it helps. But it's never been a really serious threat to the average person. Right. So See, here's the thing. You have so much social science in your book, and we mm -hmm. tend to focus on the bad. There's also a raft of social science about how to convince people to do something about global warming. And the shame of it is that some of our 
incorrect assumptions, some of our gut assumptions that aren't true, actually could help us mobilize and think correctly about global warming. Like, it's probably not true that 100% of what's going on in Australia is only because of global warming, that without global warming, there wouldn't have been any fires or any kangaroos dying or anything like that. But to think that it is will probably get the ball rolling, especially in Australia, which after America has probably the second worst society in terms of taking global warming seriously. Well, you're right. It's tough to get people to make a sacrifice today for a long-term problem like global warming. And I understand why people say, you know, we've yeah. got to do something to motivate people. I do think that in the long run, though, it just makes people skeptical. I mean, um, we point out how John Holdren, who was Obama's science advisor, he's predicted in the 80s that a billion people will be dead from starvation by global warming by 2020, by today. And people see that and they dismiss the whole problem. I understand using emotional appeals and the power back can be used for good purposes. I mean, we cite that it teaches people more, it gets people more motivated. You know, there are experiments where the Red Cross gets more people to donate blood if they make it a negative message, help someone avoid dying rather than just, you know, just be a good person. Save the children. It's not about look at the children you saved. It's called save the children. You got that sad kid with the flies on his face and then most horribly of all, Sally Struthers. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) But the problem is when you let these sort of doomsayers and activists, you know, run the agenda, then they're proposing stuff that helps them as opposed to really solving. And if you don't look at the long-term problem, put it in perspective, you can't really figure out how to address it. Yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in the book about relationships, a lot of great stuff about management. Bad apples really do spoil the bunch sometimes in an office. Exactly. It's much more important to not hire bad apples or get rid of them if they're there than it is to hire stellar people that, you know, um, interesting experiments where when you predict the performance of a team, it's predicted not by the average ability of the team members, but by the worst member there. Because one guy can just drag down the whole team. Yeah. Same with an offensive line, right? (laughs) You are the weakest link. Now, if you want to be a good manager, though, even though in general – It is a flaw of cognition to focus on the bad. A good manager, especially in this task, will focus on the bad. That's right. Bad is stronger, so it's more important to get rid of bad. And uh, we talk about the rule of four, which is a rough guideline that in general takes about four good things to overcome a bad thing. So you get a lot more leverage by eliminating the one bad thing than by trying to compensate with four good things. Researchers literally, with rule of four, they look at couples who fight and then couples who have sex afterwards. And a four-to-one ratio works? It's a good predictor. I mean, if you're having sex as often as you fight the yeah. same, that's a really bad sign. Right. I, uh, you need that. And it's predictive. You know, some people have lots of sex and more fights. Some people never fight, but they don't have much sex. That's all right then. It's called the positivity ratio. It predicts depression and uh, which people are flourishing and which aren't. It's sort of the ratio of good to bad in your life. Okay. So a lot of the book and a lot of the, if it is advice, the tenor of it is, recognize that this goes on, recognize that this is a normal human trait slash foible, and maybe change your behavior. That seems really hard because if it's true that it's so baked in, just knowing about it is interesting. But I wonder if people who are uh, fixated on the bad can actively employ a self-imposed change in their mentality. I've got confidence in people's rational ability. People actually are eating healthier. They're using their rational brains to overcome that primal impulse to just gorge yourself on something that got an appealing taste. And we've got lots of examples in the book of people who've done this. What of the last two books of this and willpower, what have you personally used to change your life? From this one, I've really you know, made an effort to 
work on that rule of four to minimize the negative and accentuate the positive. And some of the tips that we have for what to do in a relationship and how to respond when something good happens, you know, how to capitalize on that. These simple little tricks like when a friend of yours or your partner tells you something good happened, don't sit there quietly, you know, capitalize on it. That's great. Ask details about it. And it makes such a difference. And nostalgizing, is, it's a verb that I discovered as I was reporting. There's all this research that used to be considered a pathology. People, yeah, well, think of the alja. I mean, the root word yeah. is from t- pain for the past. Yes, and yeah. the ways that people were depressed. That's where, But in the last you know, 15, 20 years, they've done all these experiments showing that it is great for you, You know that it boosts your mood in the present, makes you more optimistic in the future, makes you closer to other people. So I really try to engage in nostalgia and you know, share memories with a friend. When you're and, there with the person, not just uh, personal reveries. You're talking about using nostalgia socially. Both. Both are good. It's great to share memories with someone to remember that and go over. But also just when you have some free time, instead of, you know, worrying about, oh, I got six things on my to-do list I got to do, think back about a good time that happened. And yeah, it really about does. about that one time you completed a to-do list. <laughs> yeah. Good times. Uh, right. <laughs> John Tierney is, along with Roy F. Baumeister, the author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I do not believe a woman can be president who promises to eliminate all student loan debts on her first day in office. I don't think a man could do that either, but it is Elizabeth Warren who's proposing it, so let's focus on her plan. Today, on the day of the Iowa debate, Elizabeth Warren, who is involved in a spat with Bernie Sanders and his supporters, went one further than Senator Sanders ever has. She issued a proposal to eliminate student debt up to $50,000, and this is the part that goes beyond what she has proposed before. She says she can unilaterally, as president, do it without congressional approval on day one. What a horrific idea. First of all, would it even be legal? Maybe yes, maybe no. The theory is the president controls the Department of Education, the Department of Education controls debt, There is a written provision, written back in 1965, that says that Department of Ed can modify debt, so why not modify it down to zero? Sounds simple. Well, Luke Harreen, a Yale PhD candidate, Yale Law School PhD candidate, wrote a paper for the Great Democracy Initiative supporting the notion of debt cancellation. So he lays out the steps to getting it done. Here we go. The Department of Education would issue an order to cancel debt after obtaining information from the IRS that any such cancelization would not be counted as part of gross income. That's important. Then there's the current executive branch policy of PAYGO, which means that you have to offset all payments with receipts. So because of this, the Department of Education would have to issue an order only after the Office of Management and Budget eliminates administration PAYGO or explains how it would handle it. The Department of Justice can be brought in to lean on the IRS. The IRS commissioner, of course, appointed for five years, so it wouldn't be Elizabeth Warren's own. In other words, there's a lot of executive branch maneuvering to make this dream a reality. And so much of the legality of it rests on the idea that it would be hard to find an injured party to sue about debt cancellation. Well, what about someone who just recently paid their own debts off, who struggled and worked and sacrificed and took fewer vacations and lived on less and didn't get the bigger apartment and all that? Might that person say, wait, what about me? No, that person would be 
legal term, shit out of luck, but the law would probably not regard that person as having standing to bring a lawsuit. So maybe you're thinking, well, what about me as the individual taxpayer? Yeah, you can't, you can't sue a law as a taxpayer that you don't like. But if you're saying, but as the individual taxpayer, I am subsidizing this, it will cost $1.6 trillion over a decade. Yes, yes, you're right about that. Oh, yes, you are. And you didn't need a college degree to figure that out, though if you do have a college degree, I hope you didn't already pay off your loans because the forgiveness fairy is a flight. Now let's think about, let's think through what happens when our new president, without congressional approval, which presumably means without popular support, just cancels student debt. Let's say you're in the process of applying to college, you're already in college, you're accepted to college, and you're thinking of choosing, oh, should I choose this more affordable college? Should I choose this more expensive college and hope it all works out? What do you think you would choose? Would you make any concession to college cost if you knew your debt would be forgiven? Only if you're too stupid to get into Trump you. In fact, every rational person should do anything to get a loan that they could label an education loan if they knew it was going to be forgiven. Moral hazard? No, more like a guaranteed boondoggle. Or not. Because, you know, Elizabeth Warren's not dumb. Would she really allow such a system to take hold? Wouldn't she place limitations as to who could ask for their debt to be forgiven? Well, if she did that, I think she would come into office with credibility shot on day one. Wait, you promised to erase my student debt. What am I, a sucker for voting for you? How would this affect the college loan industry? I'd say not well. I'm not sure how a loan would work. If the government would automatically forgive it, why would any lender make a loan? They'd never make any money in interest. I don't weep for the lenders. I probably wouldn't have to because there won't be any left. Most student debt winds up being owned by the government, actually, but not all of it. Even the experts agree that there is no plausible mechanism for debt forgiveness held outside the Department of Education. Sorry, those five million people. So who has student debt? About a third of American adults never went to college. Another third did, but don't have student debt. When you factor in children, you're left with about a little less than 50 million people who have some college debt. Who are they? They're wealthier and whiter than the country as a whole. They're more likely to be wealthier in the future if they are graduates. And they should be. College has long conveyed an earning advantage, though less so now. And burdensome debt is a problem. I'm not denying that. But there's plenty of evidence, including from the uh, liberal think tank Demos, that eliminating all student debt would actually increase the wealth gap between white and black households. That, by the way, is Bernie Sanders' plan. That's essentially a stimulus for anyone with debt. The Warren plan has always said it will exclude the very rich, but it does allocate a trillion and a half dollars for college graduates where it could be spending that money on a variety of programs for the poor, or hell, just cash transfers to the poor. That, most economists say, would make the poor better off. All of us better off. True. $1.5 trillion could also be wasted in Iraq. That is the case. But what does that prove? That canceling student debt is a slightly better policy than canceling Saddam Hussein? And then there are the obvious issues of executive overreach. Why, you'd have to do this why would you have to do this without Congress's approval? That alone is troubling, more, tr- more than troubling. It's quasi-dictatorial. Bernie Sanders, like I said, has this plan for eliminating all debt, which, as I said, wouldn't be the, in my opinion, best use of resources for our country. But at least that proposal is a legislative one and therefore a constitutional one. It would be passed by Congress, not by fiat. When Donald Trump killed Soleimani, he said we had a crisis and couldn't wait for Congress. 
Elizabeth Warren introduced her plan about student debt accompanied by this tweet, and I quote, we have a student loan crisis and we can't afford to wait for Congress to act. This isn't the Obama dreamer policy that he tried time and time again to institute through Congress to ask to beg Congress to solve this glaring problem. Elizabeth Warren doesn't even know what the composition of Congress will be. And still, she won't be waiting for their input, optional though it may be considered. You know what the people who favor college debt cancellation call it, or really any debt cancellation, but they're calling it with this. They call it the debt jubilee. It's a jubilee, unless you're paying for it. This jubilee has roots in the Bible, where they admonish the forgiveness of debt every seven years. Of course, the preceding admonishment to that is, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. I've always thought grand-scale debt forgiveness was unfair, unwise policy. To that, Elizabeth Warren is adding the procedural vices of it's uncollaborative, unethical, possibly unlawful. Just think there are better ways to spend our money. There are better recipients of our money. There are better ways to enact this suboptimal way to spend our money. There are so many second and third order ill effects of this policy. I almost feel like to engage with it intellectually as a serious proposal is strange and off because it has such glaring shortfalls, like the moral hazards I laid out. The effects of this policy on the loan industry, they're just hand-waved with, oh, it's just an idea, it's just a negotiating strategy, or even if it doesn't work, she's making a point, she's getting attention, she's responding to the Trumpian idea of being grabbing, more important than being well thought out. Well, I don't think like that, I don't report like that, and I don't vote like that. I think this is the worst idea that Elizabeth Warren has endorsed, and pursuing it to its end would be pretty horrible, a horrible mistake. And abandoning it at this point as a mistake, if elected, would be a terrible breaking of faith with her voters. And I don't know why she did it. This has not been tried in any country. This has not been tried by any state. Industry hasn't done this. This would be an unprecedented social and monetary experiment for a problem that represents a burdensome reality, but not a tear-up-the-Constitution crisis. Elizabeth Warren's brand has been, I have a plan for that, but I always took the unstated premise to be, I have a researched, considered, possibly tried and tested plan for that. This plan is not any of those things. It's not even much of a plan. It's a salvo and a seemingly desperate one at that. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He is experiencing a sleep debt brought on by binge-watching The Witcher, and he needs Marianne Williamson to come back to forgive it. The Gist. This entire podcast has been written on Ritz-Carlton Vienna Stationery, as has been our practice for low these past five and a half years. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.